Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. You know, we see in the scriptures that the gospel, once we believe it, it isn't just, you know, fire insurance against hell. It just isn't my ticket to heaven. It's now my calling to live the life of Christ who went about doing what? Doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. Now, here's Pastor Brian. During the Industrial Revolution, it caused people to go out and say, you know, we, we've got to have um, better working conditions, and we've got to have protection for children, and it, prison reform, and all kinds of, there, some really good things came from people being motivated by this idea. But there, there still is that, among some, you know, the idea that Christ will come and, and or, or that the, the gospel will advance and the world will slowly but surely be converted. So, you know, back at the, the turn of the, from the 19th to the 20th century, there was a thought that that's the way things were headed. And then the First World War came and shortly afterward, the Second World War came. And then more wars followed, and the 20th century became the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. And so the idea, and I remember reading uh, an author some years ago, a well-known Bible commentator, and, and a number at that time, they, they saw that they, they thought that it was just a matter of time before the world was Christianized. There was one man who was a very devoted, very brilliant scholar on Islam. He had written much on Islam. He had lived in the Islamic world. He had been a missionary. He was a professor at Yale eventually. And he wrote back in like the 20s, that he could see that within his lifetime, Islam would disappear from the face of the earth. That's how anemic Islam was at the time. And it seemed that the gospel was Christianizing the world. But of course, everything changed. The kingdom is here. Uh, Christ will come eventually set up God's eternal kingdom. But this thing about no indicators, this is the interesting thing to me because if you talk to somebody who holds this position, they have no indicators whatsoever of what, what kind, any kind of a, of a time frame for the coming of Christ. It just, you know, and you, you will hear people who hold this position say something like, well, you know, they, they might say, well, the Lord could come any day, but of course he could come a thousand years from now as well. Because they don't have, they don't have any 
They don't have any markers to, to judge anything by because the theology doesn't really lend itself to those markers. But again, I think in, in the Old Testament, God certainly gave markers for the coming of the Messiah the first time. And Jesus seems to give markers for his second coming because he says to the disciples, when you see these things happen, look up, lift up your head. He gives a number of things. So I think these are serious problems with this position, the position of amillennialism. But there are a couple of positive things to it. There are a couple of positive things. Number one is they do recognize rightly that the kingdom is already here. And I'm going to kind of walk through premillennialism in a moment and show you where premillennialism has some weaknesses, some problems. But so this is one of the positives, that, that the kingdom is here. It's already here. Christ has come and the kingdom is here. The kingdom is being set up. Of course, they would almost in some ways look at, there's not so much of a uh, already, but not yet. For them, it's a little bit more like it, it's already, it's here. So we just got to get about the work of the kingdom and we've got to do it. and We've got to build a world for Christ and all of that sort of thing. But the idea that the kingdom is here is a correct idea. And then the second positive thing is that it lends itself to broader application of biblical text, especially Old Testament text. It, it lends itself to a broader application in the sense that it doesn't just dismiss a portion of scripture and say, well, that just applies to the future. It draws out application for the present. And so over the years, for me, I have come to appreciate. I disagree with the amillennial position, but I have come to appreciate the, um, the positive contributions that it has made. And, and again, there, there have been many, just some of you know, great scholars, great Bible men and women, teachers, brilliant people with wonderful contributions to understanding the faith who come from this background. So we don't want to ever demonize these kinds of positions. Now, some, some people would just say that this is absolute heresy and anybody who believes this, we should not have any association with them. And I think that that is a statement that would really be born out of um, a ton of ignorance. Now, let's go back to premillennialism. So premillennialism, again, is the belief that, like the passages that we read, they, are, they will literally be fulfilled. There will be a, a temple that is rebuilt. It will be in Jerusalem. Jesus will sit as a king priest on the throne according to Zechariah chapter six and so forth. But the, the premillennial position, 
which I hold. And there's, there's an addition to this because there, there's, there's two kinds of premillennial understanding. There's historic premillennialism, which was held by somebody like Charles Spurgeon, for example. And his view was simply that Christ would come and set up the millennial kingdom and he didn't go beyond it. Then there's dispensational premillennialism, which is kind of the premillennialism of today that has along with it generally connected to premillennialism is what we call pre-tribulationalism, which has to do with the rapture. And this form of premillennialism has, I think, a couple of problems. One problem is that it operates with a, an interpretation that is, it is a wooden literalism. And what I mean by wooden literalism is it's, there's just like zero flexibility. There's, so, so this passage here, like we're reading, so this passage, I believe it is talking about the future, but the, the wooden literalist would say, yes, it is, and it's only talking about the future, so it has no relevance or application to us now. So we, we okay, we just read it. This is what's going to happen in the future. We don't have to think about it anymore. Now, the, the passage where we read here, which I want to close with, about the river and going into the river ankle deep and then knee deep and then waist deep and then swimming in the river, the 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 wooden literalist would just say, well, that's just a picture of what's going to happen then. But a more gracious literalism would say, well, yes, that is going to happen then, but there's something to it right now. This is talking about the spirit. Wherever the the river goes, wherever the water goes, this is a reference to the healing of the spirit. So we would find application and we would see that this is something for us today. It's not just something for them. So that's, that's one problem, I think, with premillennialism and especially dispensational premillennialism. But the other problem is it tends to lead toward a pessimism in the present. It, it leads toward a pessimism because it basically says this. I've said this, you've probably said this, I've heard hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of Christians say this. Looking at the world, it's all gonna burn. What does it matter? Why, why, do, we, why do we need to do anything? It's, it's all gonna burn or, hey, the Lord's gonna fix it all when he gets back, you know, that's not our problem. We gotta just, our thing is we gotta just get the gospel out. That's all, that's all we need to be concerned about. We don't, we don't concern ourselves with social matters. We don't get involved in those kinds of things, politics. We don't, you know, like, man, what is all this crazy stuff about, you know, trying to take care of the earth and being concerned about whatever, the thing might be global warming or, uh, you know, that would just be completely dismissed out of hand as totally irrelevant. Our view is that the world is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and then Jesus is going to come and fix it. And I believe that it is absolutely the case that 
a certain premillennial understanding has led to a pessimism and as a result of that to an inactivity when it comes to trying to see the gospel go into the culture of the society and bring a blessing. But here's the thing that we often never think about because most premillennial people, especially dispensational premillennial, everybody thinks that they're living in, that they're, they're living in the time when Jesus is gonna come. So we don't have any time to think about future generations because Jesus isn't gonna come. When I was a young man at this church at the age of maybe 23 or 24, and I had a bunch of friends here, we were all the same age, Some were getting married. Some were thinking about getting married. Some were having kids. Some were thinking about having kids. I can't tell you how many times I heard things like this. Well, you know, we were gonna get married, but we just decided the Lord's gonna come back and what's the point? So we we decided we're not gonna get married. Or, you know, we, 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 we were praying like maybe we should have kids and then we thought, you know what? The Lord's coming back. We don't wanna have any kids. We gotta just get about the work of the kingdom. Now, those same people eventually got married. Those same people eventually had kids. But, you know, but, th- but this is a real mentality. And I've thought a lot about this lately because, you know, some people have pointed this out and I think it is true. You see, the thing is, even if we believe that Jesus' coming is soon, we don't know how soon. And you know what? I have grandkids And I think I really would like to try to leave the world in a better state than it is just in case the Lord doesn't get here before I have to go and they got to live into the next generations. So this pessimism has led to an inactivity, and in many ways, a denial of the gospel. Because Jesus, you know, we see in the scriptures that the gospel, once we believe it, it isn't just, you know, fire insurance against hell. It just isn't my ticket to heaven. It's now my calling to live the life of Christ who went about doing what? Doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. So that to me is, now I'm I'm premillennial, but I am going to buck the trend of pessimism and inactivity, and I want you to do that too. Now, let me answer this question though. How do we resolve the biggest problem with the premillennial view is, I think, the real challenging issue is how do you understand the once and for all sacrifice of Christ in light of sacrifices in the future? How do you reconcile those two things? It seems very difficult, very challenging. So in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, five times it It emphasizes that Christ has offered one sacrifice forever for sin. I mean, that's the main point of those two chapters. This is a once and forever thing. 
And even earlier, chapter 8, talking about the temple, the sacrifices and all of that, that is part of an old covenant that's passing away. And the author said it's been made obsolete. And some few decades later, it would pass away. So how do we resolve this? Well, I think it can be resolved. I think it can be resolved, and this is how I resolve it. Hebrews 10.4 says this, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. The blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. They never took it away. What did that blood do? That blood covered temporarily for sin, but that blood pointed to the blood of Christ who would take away sin. For 2,000 years, the church has done this in remembrance of what Jesus did. What have we done? We've partaken of the bread, the body of Christ, and the cup, the blood of Christ. We've remembered the Lord's death until he comes. The bread and the cup don't take away our sins, right? The animal sacrifices didn't take away the sins of Israel. They pointed to, the bread and the cup point back to, this is what I think. I think that the sacrificial system will be reinstated, just like it says here. Not because sins haven't been atoned for, but because the Israelites, having rejected their Messiah for 2,000 years, they will be given a daily reminder, just as we remember in the bread and the cup, the Lord's death until he come, they will be reminded every day through the ongoing sacrifices that the king sitting on the throne in the temple sacrificed himself for us. That will be to them what communion is to us. That's what I think the answer to the question is. I don't think you can dismiss these things. I don't think you can just say, well, you got to just spiritualize it. It's all allegory. It's like I said earlier, there's just way too much detail for that. So this picture here in Ezekiel is indeed the picture of what the future holds. But it's, it's one aspect of it, like I said. Isaiah tells us more about it. But you know, there's a couple of interesting things. I want you just to think about this really quick. There's so many things. Today, I was seriously like, gosh, there's so many things to this. How do I even do this? But I, I wanted you to see there's two categories of priests in this, in this um, scenario here. There's one group that can serve as guards of the temple, but they cannot serve in the offering. And they cannot serve in the offering because it says specifically that they sinned against the Lord with their idols. But then this group of priests, Zadok, the Zadokites, the implication is that they resisted that. Now, here's a really crazy thing. Isaiah chapter 66. 
Isaiah chapter 66 says, God speaks, he says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for my name? And then he's talking about a temple. And then he goes on to say this. He said, they who offer a sacrifice is like one who breaks a dog's neck. They who offer a burnt offering is like a person who slew a man. They who offer a sin offering is like someone who slaughtered a pig. God is saying there that there is a temple and there are sacrifices that are abominable to him. I think, again, remember we talked about this last week, that there's a specific thing that God keeps saying to the people, even after they're restored, he talks about how they sinned against him when they dwelt in peace. And I brought this up last time. All of this, I think, is talking about, it's talking about when the Antichrist makes a covenant with the nation. And some of the priests, they're part of it. They go along with it. They offer the sacrifices. But others of the priests, they resist it. And if you read a little bit further in Isaiah 66, it's all kind of there. So that's the reason why this particular group of priests are not able to serve in these these memorial offerings in, in the future because they capitulated to the Antichrist and the emphasis there on idols. And we know about the idol that will be placed in the temple and all of that. So there's so many fascinating things in all of these books. But let's close with, um, again, just think about this river. I love this passage. It's just so, it's just such a beautiful picture to think of the spirit in this kind of way. Um, and remember there, it's, it's talking about this water that's flowing from the altar. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14 pretty much says the exact same thing. And again, Zechariah 14, the first, I think it's six verses are talking about the battle. And then it goes the same thing here. It goes right into this. It's talking about this water that flows, this living water, it refers to it as living water there in Zechariah. But I love this picture of this trickle, but then the water deepening, ankle deep and knee deep and up to the waist, and then it becomes a river that I could not cross. And just think about that as the Holy Spirit just rising up in our midst. And initially, we're just, you know, there's just a trickle. (laughs) But then... It's ankle deep. And then we find ourselves knee deep. And then we find ourselves waist deep. And then we find ourselves, we had to swim in this. Man, I pray for that. Lord, bring that increased outpouring of your spirit to us. And wherever the spirit goes, there's life, brings life. And isn't that so true and it's so beautiful? Wherever the Spirit goes, there's life. And then the final, the very last words are so profound of Ezekiel. And the name of the city from that time on will be called Yahweh is there. <laughs> 
God will now fulfill as he declared. He will there be among his people. For the month of November, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, One Minute Answers to Skeptics, Concise Responses to the Top 50 Objections and Questions by Charlie Campbell. Learn how to give a defense for the faith in a conversational style and strengthen your own confidence in the existence of God and the reliability of the Word. The book, One Minute Answers to Skeptics by Charlie Campbell, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Ezekiel. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.